Hello, and welcome back to Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queer people in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Um, well, today we're talking about um, Tokugawa Iemetsu, a shogun in Japan in the 17th century. Um, yeah. Let's start, I think, by clearing up exactly what shogun shoguns uh, were. Um, shoguns were essentially sort of military leaders who emerged in the 8th century in Japan at the start of the Heian period. Um, and the Kyoto-based empire of the House of Yamoto was at war with the Emishi, who were an ethnic group, or perhaps a group of different um, ethnic tribes in the uh, uh, Tohoku region. Apologies in advance for my pronunciation in this episode. I've, um, I have been reading up a little bit on uh, pro- Japanese pronunciation, but I'm certain I'll get it wrong. Um, but um, Tohoku is a region that's at the very north of Honshu, which is the largest island of Japan. And Japan was at the time going through this period of immense change. Um, so over the previous few centuries, under the um, Asuka and Nara periods, the country had seen a number of sweeping reforms as the ruling class had moved towards um, a new form of government that was more influenced by Confucianism and modelled on the Chinese Tang Dynasty's rule, um, really influenced by what was happening in Japan at the time, in China, sorry, at the time. And this was like an attempt to sort of consolidate imperial power through centralization. And the most major of these reforms was a, a land reform where the imperial house essentially nationalized all the land in Japan and redistributed it, effectively sort of ending the power of traditional clans and feudal rule. And alongside this, um, weapons were to be stored in government armories. Um, there was this new centralized bureaucracy and tax system. And importantly, military conscription was introduced. So these, forms were, uh, these reforms were an attempt to centralize his power under the control of the emperor, his government, and his court. Um, and although this did limit regional power, it didn't actually remove the influence of clan families who still operated within this system. So the Amishi, who, the, 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 the people they were fighting, were regarded as um, uncivilized and in, in particular actually hairy. That was a big thing they said about them, they were hairy. Similar, I guess, to how like Romans, um, ancient Romans might have regarded Germanic tribes. They saw them as barbarians. So the leader of this military force was known as the um, Sei Tai Shogun, or the commander-in-chief of the expeditionary force against the barbarians. And so this became known in its short form as Shogun. As we move into the Haiyan period, we start to see this centralization start to break down. Um, there's a couple of, um, a, well, a series, in fact, of these devastating smallpox epidemics, which really limited the centralized government's operation, its ability to, ability to operate. And it changed the sort of economic and cultural makeup of the country, it, kind of in a similar way to the, the, um, the Black Death in, in Europe. Um, the system of uh, nationalization had already begun to break down anyway. Um, this nationalization system had removed the incentive to um, reclaim land and develop new fields. So the government introduced this new system, and under this new system, if you reclaimed land to produce a new field, you could cultivate it either for the rest of your life or sometimes handing it down. Um, and this led to this reemergence of a landowning aristocracy and with it, this new military class that nobles used to protect their assets and power. And at the same time, the official uh, Japanese missions to Tang China ended. And so imports from China collapsed. 
leading to actually what is often regarded as a high point in Japanese cultural production. Um, I don't know if you've ever read this um, book. It's fantastic. It's called uh, The Pillow Book by um, Sai Shonagon, who was this um, uh, noble woman at the time. She wrote some really interesting I have of, read this book. Yeah. And this book is amazing. Really um, good book, yeah. Many, I mean, many, many parts of it are um, it's the sort of reflections of this court woman in this unbelievably sophisticated court culture in which the fold of the drape of a sleeve is the topic of days, if not weeks of conversation. And some yeah. of it is this very evocative poetry. And some of it is lists of things that she finds annoying, which I think are wonderful. Um, or lists of things she finds beautiful or things that remind her of a certain flower or yeah, it's a really amazing book. At one point in it, she says it's so, you know, it's a list of things that are annoying or, or things that sort of, you know, put you off a bit. And she says, when, uh, snow falls in an aesthetically pleasing way on the roofs of the houses of common people who aren't educated enough to enjoy it. <laughs> this is annoying. Is that mother? <laughs> um, She's well, mother. Megan Trainer is not. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Sai Sh- uh, Shonagon, um, she, she, she wrote that book sort of at the height of the, the high end period. Um, and um, by the end of this period, the Heian period in the 11th or 12th century, the emperor had effectively um, suppressed the Amishi. Um, but he'd seen the, the empire change from the cent- centralized empire into one where these regional um, noble, noble clan elites now ha- held a huge amount of power. Um, and they, they maintained control over these large estates and they battle each other through the use of um, a new warrior and officer caste a sort of military elite class known as the samurai. So as these, these clans begin to marry into the imperial family, they, they gain more control over the state. Um, and there's three major clans who'd benefited from this new feudal structure and from this intermarriage, and they emerged as the sort of three dominant families of the era. Um, they were the Fujiwara clan, the Minamoto clan, and the Taira clan. Um, so following this series of um, court intrigues and then then some violent rebellions, the Fujiwara clan, um, which for a long time had been the most powerful, was sidelined. And then in the power struggles that followed, eventually it was the leader of the Minamoto clan, um, a man called Minamoto no Yoritomo, who emerged victorious. And as the shogun of this um, supremely powerful feudal system of samurai, these, these soldiers um, that he was a military commander of, in, in 1192, he established his military headquarters, and then with it, the first shogunate, the uh, Kamakura shogunate. Um, and in doing so, he seized the power to collect taxes and to um, supervise public and private estates and to rule provinces and so on. So this marked an entirely new sort of political and social system for Japan. Um, while the nation was still ruled de jure, you know, in, in, in law, theoretically, by the emperor, the emperor actually remained a, a token, a symbolic figurehead, while all the real power was held in this series of shogunates, which lasted for almost 700 years. This was a sort of military dictatorship that passed through several separate um, hereditary dynasties. Tokugawa Iemetsu, who is the subject of today's episode, was a, was a shogun of one of these shogunates, not just a military commander, but the de facto military dictator of Japan. Um, specifically, he was the third shogun of the Tokugawa dynasty. Um, Tokugawa is his family name. Um, Iemitsu is his, his first name. 
This was actually the last shogunate of Japan. It lasted over 250 years. And it started with the rule of um, Iemitsu's father, uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu. Um, and the, the, the years, indeed the, the centuries leading up to the Tokugawa shogunate had been very chaotic and bloody. Uh, the shogunate that came before, the Ashikaga uh, shogunate, had descended into almost a century of, of feuding and wars that's known as the Sengoku period or the Warring States period. Um, and that only ended when one of the warlords, um, who are called um, Daimo, he was a guy called um, Oda Nobunaga. He 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 sort of um, reinstalled this final Ashigawa shogun, and he embarked on this campaign to again reunify this chaotic and fractured nation. Um, he was actually known as the first great unifier of Japan, and after his death, he was replaced by by um, a second great unifier, Toyotimo Hideyoshi, who was a peasant who had risen up to become this great feudal lord. And it was after his death that his, his former adversary, his enemy, um, Tokugawa Ieyasu, became the third great unifier. And so he was the founder of the uh, Tokugawa shogunate in um, 1600. So he, he nominally retired in 1605 to allow his son, Tokugawa Hidetata, Tada, um, to become the second dynastic shogun. But in reality, he was still ruling from behind the scenes until he died uh, 10 years later in 1615. And this actually wasn't unusual at all. Um, during the uh, Heian period, it was very common for an emperor to formally abdicate his role in, in favor of his son, but to remain in, in power behind the scenes. And this was known as um, the office of the cloistered emperor. So this was a very similar arrangement for this um, abdicated shogun. And this arrangement was known as Ogoshu. He became the Ogoshu shogun. So on the 12th of August, 1604, uh, Iemitsu was born. And he was the first son to be born into the shogunate, this new shogunate. Um, although he was nominally claimed as the son of um, Hidetada and his wife, Oeyo, there were rumors actually he was the son of his um, grandfather, Ieyasu, and a, a noblewoman called um, Kasuga no Tsubone, who was uh, his wet nurse. She became his wet nurse and then later became a very trusted advisor throughout his reign. Um, so maybe he wasn't actually his father's son. Maybe he was his quote-unquote grandfather's son. So either way, he was, he was, um, he was born into enormous power and it's a very fractious moment. Uh, the Tokugawa shogunate, which is sometimes called the Edo shogunate or Edo period, um, was markedly different from its predecessor shogunate. In its early years, it was it was marked by the anxieties that produced its um, formation, uh, a fear of the daimyo, these feudal lords who had um, uh, in some ways put it into power, and a, and a desire to control them. Um, so the loose, the very loose class system of the Ashikaga shogunate was replaced with this new, incredibly strict, very hierarchical hereditary class system that was very rigor rigorously policed. And perhaps unusually for, for, for um, European eyes, this class system actually wasn't really based on wealth at all or, or even necessarily power, but it was based on this philosophical moral order that was aimed at ensuring um, stability and a unity in the nation. Um, so at the top was the, the emperor and the imperial court, and then, of course, the shogun, despite the fact that, of course, the shogun actually had the power, actually ruled. 
And then beneath the shogun were the uh, daimyo, this class of noble lords who were the most powerful of the samurai. Um, and although they held this enormous power in the country, the shogunate was very conscientious about curtailing their ability to rebel or to plot against them. So they implemented a system where the uh, daimyo were obliged to keep a residence in the new capital, Ido, as well as another in their estates, their castle town. Um, and, and then they were, they were forced to stay in a capital uh, in, for one year, and then the alternate year, the next year, they had to get to their estates and then come back. So they'd spend a year in a capital, having a year on their estates. Um, and this was to ensure that they couldn't spend too much time out of the observation of the, the shogun and the shogunate, um, and also of the other nobles. But at the same time, it meant that when a lord was away on his estate, his wife and children were required to stay in the capital so that the, the shogun would always have a sort of ready supply of hostages if they were to rebel, which obviously did a great job of discouraging rebe rebellion. Um, and the cost of maintaining these two residences, their castle and their, their, their home in the capital, would also limit their capacity to, wear, to wage war. Um, and then on top of this, the... Um, the daimyo also had to sort of furnish samurai, like a sort of had to provide soldiers to serve the emperor military. And then below the daim, uh, daimyo were the so-called four divisions of society. And this was a continuation of this very strict hierarchical social order. So at the top were the samurai who were um, given a stipend um, and they were prevent that prevents them from having too much financial autonomy, such as owning land, in order to tie their loyalty to the system. And they served the lords. So the lord would have this whole, whole crew of, um, of samurai underneath and, uh, that, that they paid for. And they also had this very strict moral and ethical code known as Bushido, um, which is kind of we call in English um, the way of the samurai. And that dictated both the laws of combat and also sort of ethical norms around honor and social interaction. Um, we tend to, to see it, I guess, the way it's portrayed in, in the West is like this, this, this fixed warrior code that's like universal, but actually it wasn't like that at all. It, it, it evolved um, across time and also in different parts of Japan, it kind of had different rules and sometimes. Um, they were sort of a, a set of changing and evolving norms, but they were extremely powerful um, and they demanded a lot of the samurai <clears throat> i think we can talk about this in a bit actually but th so this this class of the samurai was probably about 10 percent of the population and and they served as this this military noble class and their lack of ties to land mean meant they also helped to produce these new very busy towns around the castles and the estates on which they served so it was also a period of sort of urbanization of sorts sort of building of these towns Below the samurai were the peasant class who owned their land, so they, they weren't serfs, they weren't tied to, to, their, to their lord in that way, um, but they had to pay taxes on it to their lord. So this meant that they could actually become quite wealthy, reasonably wealthy, um, but they were still tied very much to these rural communities in which they lived, and that fostered these very close-knit social ties, a social cohesion, but also a, a strong sense of social conservatism. Um, and despite being peasants, a peasantry basically, they were actually quite high in the social hierarchy because um, their labor was seen as productive. Like they, they actually made stuff. And also because they, they produced food, and obviously food is the most important commodity for um, social peace. If you're, if you're trying to end war and um, produce a bit of stability in your nation, the most important thing you need is, is food. 
Um, so that's why they actually ranked higher than the next class, which was the artisans. And then below the artisans, the, the lowest rung of society of this f- for ordered form of society were merchants, were businessmen who um, produced nothing. So they, had, they were quite low in the moral order. Um, and they could become quite rich, but they were actually prohibited from spending a lot of that money on luxury items. Um, the sort of things that the samurai had, they weren't allowed to buy because they had to maintain this um, rigid class hierarchy. And then outside of this class system were the uh, untouchables, so-called untouchables. Um, this referred to people who in various guises um, dealt with death. So undertakers, butchers, people who worked in slaughterhouses, executioners, uh, people like that. Um, and then also ethnic minorities who were seen as being um, outside of um, of their system. So all these class positions were hereditary. It was almost impossible to pass across the class lines, and that was, again, intentional. Um, after all, uh, Toyotimo Hideyoshi, the, the great enemy of Iemetsu's grandfather, the, the second great unifier, he had actually been this peasant who had risen up to the very highest echelons of Japanese power, and this was a situation that the um, Tokugawa shogunate obviously didn't want to happen again. So Iemitsu was the first shogun to grow up under this very strict new socially conservative regime. And he was raised by um, Lady Kasuga, his his former wet nurse, who was very close to his grandfather, the Agoshu shogun, the the old shogun, the emeritus shogun, uh, Ieyasu. And she'd actually divorced her husband in order to become his wet nurse and then his nanny. And she guarded his interests very, very fiercely. Um, his childhood wasn't particularly happy. He was, he was very sick and ill a lot of the time. And at the age of three, he became desperately ill, and he only recovered after being admits, uh, administered medicine that his grandfather had given. Um, and this meant that he had this very intense bond with the, the former shogun, the Agoshu shogun. Um, it became clear you know, quite early in his youth, that actually his parents also had a favorite, and it wasn't Iemitsu. It was his younger brother, Tokugawa Tadanaga. And Tadanaga was everything that they'd wanted, I guess, Iemitsu to be. Um, intelligent, uh, he was sharp-witted, he had military savvy, um, he was known as being kind and generous to others. Um, perhaps this is where the rumor came from that he wasn't actually their son, I don't know. But the grandfather, the... the um, the Agoshu shogun, Ieyasu, he preferred the actual heir, Iemitsu. And it's alleged um, one of the reasons he didn't like the, his second grandson, Tadanaga, was that he looked far too much like his old enemy. But anyway, Lady Kasuga uh, became increasingly worried that the, the current shogun um, would, would announce that his second son would actually become his heir. So she called the Agoshu shogun to the palace, and seeing how much his his daughter-in-law favored Tadanaga, the, the other son. He actually confirmed the line of succession in Iemitsu's favor. And so at this age, at 14, he came of age. And this very much sealed the fate of both the boys and encouraged a, a brutal rivalry between them. And when um, Iemitsu eventually became uh, became shogun much later on, he uh, declared that his brother had actually been mad and been, been plotting against him and forced him to commit suicide. Um, so it's, it's clear that Iemitsu was de- definitely the more brutal of the brothers. So from a, a young age, he'd had this close friend called um, 
Sakabe Gozaimon. And he was a sort of um, courtier or servant who he entered into this form of quite ritualized homosexual relationship with. And he was probably five or six years older than Iemitsu, and they'd, they'd been friends as younger younger children. Um, but they they became lovers as part of this ritualized relationship. Um, but that relationship began to sour, and they started to quarrel. And one day when Iemitsu was 15 and um, Gozaimon was 21, the two of them were taking a bath together. And Iemitsu either lost control, or perhaps he had been planning it for a while, and he sort of took his chance. And he stabbed Sakabe to death while he was in the bath with him. Oh my god. Yeah. Is, mean, stabbing, is stabbing also a part of this ritualized homosexuality <laughs> or no? <laughs> um, well, mm, perhaps, yeah. I mean, um, it's just the, the, the sort of, there's something very brutal and horrible about the idea of stabbing someone to death while they're in a bath with you. I don't know. Yeah, it's really, it's an extremely uh, visceral way yeah, to commit murder. The blood. Um, here, I think. Yeah, this is a good time, I guess, we can talk, in fact, about the samurai, because that, that kind of ties into this, and to um, Bushido, their warrior code. Um, as, I, as I mentioned before, the samurai was this all-male warrior caste that had operated for hundreds of years on the basis of these highly f- ordered forms of um, honor, behavior, bonding, kinship, strict hierarchy, etc., etc. Uh, I'm going to shock you here, Ben, and tell you that this hyper-masculine, all-male warrior cast did in fact have a tendency towards fucking each other. <gasps> Never in human history <laughs> has this ever happened. Um, yeah, that's, and it's, it's interesting how it, was, how it was seen and approached, I guess. I think um, Japan had, uh, has a very unusual, um, uh, specific relationship towards the idea of same-sex desire and i think to understand how same-sex desire was understood in edo japan in this period you first have to obviously address religion because religious thought like in the west it's not just a set of practices for worship or or rituals or, or theological debates but it has this much deeper ontological understanding it helps structure the the, the society in that way ontology in this case meaning a sort of philosophical study of um of being and existence. So um, by this, I mean that the religion, um, as it still does, it structured the, the most basic building blocks in how people understood their existence in the world. So while we can look at the specifics of like religious teaching, how religious teaching shaped people's attitudes towards desire, same-sex desire, like the rules, we can also look at the more fundamental structures of how religious thought shaped those attitudes underneath as it were. So the two, the two primary religions in Japan are Shinto and Buddhism, um, although the distinction between them is not as clear as it might be between Abrahamic faiths. There's a lot of syncretic practices that, that marry aspects of the, bo- of the both of them. That's quite common, and are people who practice forms of both. But Shinto is a polytheistic um, and animist religion, Buddhism's not, but they both put an emphasis upon um, producing and adhering to philosophical ways of being. So attitudes towards same-sex desire in Japan didn't take the same shape as they did in Abrahamic countries or religion countries based on Abrahamic religions that were more focused on a sort of um, law-based understanding of 
correct behavior. And instead you find um, repeated forms in which same-sex desire was understood as an ethic or even like um, what they'd call like a way, like a way of being. Right, so you're not dealing with a situation in which there is a religious prohibition which is said by religious leaders to have come down from God, right? And this is the, this is, these are the rules. These are the Levitican rules, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. Instead, you're talking about uh, different and potentially um, more kind of contradictory and diffuse ethics. Yeah, or not, I, I wouldn't say necessarily contradictory. I'd say diffuse, and I'd also say that a lot more understanding of how to, um, I guess, manage actions, acts, in this case, sex acts, as in an ethical way, as forms of behavior within a, a wider society. Your obligations towards other people um, is more important than your adherence to a set of rules handed down by a god, for example. So in Shintoism, there, are, there, are, there actually are no specific prohibitions on homosexuality at all. Uh, and, and in Buddhism, there, there tends to be more of a focus on the idea of um, sexual misconduct, in which homosexuality might play a part of that. But the, sex, the, point, the point about sexual misconduct is it is something that um, uh, stands in the way of you uh, reaching enlightenment. It stands in, stands in the way rather than being a sin for which you'll be condemned. It's like a, a, a thing that is preventing you from actualization. Um, and again, like there's... Well, I'll say like there's no there's no specific prohibition on homosexuality. Like this is obviously again like painting with a huge brushstroke here. Buddhism is this enormous religious practice with these often like wildly divergent trajectories and positions. So you can't really talk about a Buddhist belief about homosexuality um, any more than in some ways you can talk about Christian belief. You know, Christianity covers everything from a sort of uh, Quaker belief, you know, which is talking about the moral nature of sex, which is determined by the intent of those people who are doing the sex all the way through to a sort of Westboro Baptist church, God hate fags, hates fags sort of belief, you know, like where homosexual sex is like so powerful that it can cause earthquakes and wars and stuff. I wish. Or my own Christian uh, horseshoe theory, which believes that homosexuality is both things. But that's not to say that Japan was a place um, of like what we'd call tolerance today for homosexuality. Obviously, like, tolerance is a modern conception. Homosexuality is a modern conception. But um, yeah, that's not to say that what there wasn't complexities and difficulties in same-sex desire. But it is noticeable how much more visible uh, relationships that we would today call homosexual, homosexual um how much more visible those relationships are in, in Japanese culture. And from well before the Edo period, um, these take, you know, various different forms. There's a, there's a minoritarian tradition of sort of pederastic homosexuality that exists within Buddhist monastic communities. And then of course, there's just loads and loads of mentions of various types of sort of same sex desire in, in Japanese literature. There's, um, for example, there's, there's passages in the tale of Genji, which is this um, 11th century classical um, Japanese story about court life. And that was written at the end of the uh, Heian period. Um, and these mentions seem to sort of increase under the shogunates. And um, it's even in fact suggested that Minamoto no Yoritomo, the first shogun to create, to sort of control an entire shogunate, um, he actually had a male lover called Yoshinao, who was a member of the Imperial Guard. 
um, the historian Louis Crompton suggests that six of the 15 Ashikaga shoguns actually had male lovers. And according to another account, one of them, Ashikaga Yoshinori, he had a young lover called Akimatsu Sanamura, who, quote, received sexual favors, likes of which will not be found anywhere. Um, so Yoshin, Yoshinori uh, had bestowed on Sadamura these three regions that actually belonged to another daimyo, um, upon which the daimyo had Yoshinori assassinated. So you're seeing, like again, these dynamics of favorites, I guess. So is this a system of favorites that maybe reminds us of something that was happening uh, in the era of uh, Deng Xuan in, in China? Is this a similar kind of... Um court favorite system yeah it's it, yeah it, it is a similar system and it's a similar system as well that you're seeing kind of around the same time in in the life of someone like um james the first and and six who we've talked about before but i think it again this religious aspect does actually change the 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 nature of it because um homosexuality as it sort of exists in japanese society like it might have been regarded as sexual misconduct, but it doesn't seem to have been um, a, been misconduct on an order of magnitude worse than, say, having concubines. Like it wasn't a sin. It might not have been the ideal way of acting, but it but it wasn't the same thing as a, as a sin. Interesting. Yeah, in fact, um, this is actually one of the attitudes in Japanese society that most struck the early Christian missionaries who visited Japan, uh, much as it did. Uh, in other indigenous cultures that they encountered elsewhere, there was a practice that they saw as as uh, validating their their proselytizing. Um, a, a Christian, a Jesuit missionary who visited the country in 1596, wrote that such what he called abominations of the flesh were quote regarded in Japan as quite honourable. Men of standing entrust their sons to the bonzes to be instructed in such things, and at the same time serve their lust. Um, bonzes are uh, Buddhist monks. So this form of pederastic sexual and romantic relationship was known as um, nanshoku. Um, but as I mentioned before, the samurai also practiced a form of same-sex relationship that was referred to as uh, wakashudo, which means something like way of the youth. So like I said, um, discuss, discussing these sort of different forms of ontology, especially ones inspired by religion, you see, you see something like that here in the way that it's called the way, like it's a it's it's not just a type of desire, but it's a way of living living within that desire, something that, that binds that, that form of sexual relationship between the two people with other ethical and behavioral implications and imperatives. And within the period of Edo Japan, like most things, these these forms were um, codified quite quite rigorously. One thing that's that's most interesting in this codification of Wakashudo, or Shudo as it's known. Um, is how it was almost exclusively used to refer to male-male desire, but as a form of relationship, it's never actually explicit. So you're actually finding it popping up in popular satire and humor as sometimes existing between like widows and young men, like old widows and young men. Um, despite the fact that it doesn't seem to have actually happened, like in fact, that's obviously like where the humor comes from. Um, so it, it, it involves one of the partners being a young man and the other person being someone who follows the way of the youth. But it's not actually, it's not the gender that is the, 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 the core of the nature of the relationship. It's, it's the age difference or the, the um, yeah, um, 
and uh, I think that in itself is quite interesting that you could have a, a relationship like this and actually the eroticization of the relationship is not a is not sorry gender but is actually age um, so so yeah we we read it as a homosexual form but really it was yeah a sexual relationship with age gap as the um, the erotic focus of the the relationship so they were they were generally pederastic um, there does seem to be some discussion at the time about the sort of lower age limit of those relationships um, but the the focus of the youth when the, the youth was seemed to be in, in its prime was was boys and young men who were in their late teens um, and the upper limit uh, which again was a subject of a lot of discussion in in Japanese society was sort of anywhere between 20 and 30 um, and what's yeah what's interesting and again we see again here this tie to this idea of like a social ethic is that adulthood like youth like when you become an adult is not determined by physiology but it's by it's a social marker so the arrival of things that today in our society we would regard as the markers of like being a grown man like um like uh, facial hair or a, a deeper voice or broadening soldiers or um larger larger genitals and things like this like uh, these secondary sexual characteristics they didn't actually signify the end of youth as much as going through a formal coming of age ceremony like they pointed towards it but they weren't the eroticized thing like if you were categorically a youth but you'd actually passed all the way through puberty and had was starting to grow facial hair and you know or you know there's there's, there's a case of one guy who's really into hairy youth so he's he's attracted to what we would see as masculine adult male characteristics they they had eroticized uh, uh, he'd eroticized them but only on youth does that make sense yeah where so it's not actually the the youth category has to do with the kind of um spatial relationship within the within hierarchical systems of um kind of knowledge attainment and status attainment and i mean could there be a situation in which the desired youth in this system is actually older in years than the yes. than the desirer absolutely yes like that could happen because um the adulthood was determined by these other social signifiers such as um the right to wear certain special clothes especially if you're a samurai um the having gone through a certain type of training or especially like a haircut so so once you had passed into adulthood as a man you had this haircut where the sort of um is it the pate like the top of your head is like shaved um sort of back to your top knot which would come out behind so you'd have like a sort of um uh your 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 hairline being shaved all the way back that was a sign of adulthood and your youthful forelocks would be cut off and so if you were you could be the younger man in literal age difference and have this part shaved off and but you'd be seen as somehow not the youth you'd be the adult where the older the older man would be still seen as a boy because he hadn't been through that process um and as a result, the things that were erotic, that the most highly eroticized weren't the characteristics that in our society we'd understand as being related to age. Other things were highly eroticized. So having the long forelocks that you had as you were growing up and were shaved off in, once you became a man, the, the forelocks themselves became like super eroticized rather than, say, 
having slim shoulders or a slim waist. So what was um, what was attractive here was partly this difference. Um, a, a historian of, of homosexuality in Japan uh, called um, Gregory <coughs> called Gregory uh, Flugfelder he suggests that there was actually some form of gender difference here, but not in terms of sex characteristics. Like the the boys were seen as male, but but they 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 weren't men because they 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 weren't the penetrating partner just as women weren't but they weren't men they weren't samurai they didn't have the rights and ability that I suggested but they would become men so it was like this different category category i guess um that was seen as acceptable to desire and much as in the sort of european classical tradition as well one of the functions of the shudo dynamic um was this pedagogical as well as pederastic by, by which I mean the relationship was one in which the older man was supposed to help shape and mature the, the youth through the relationship. This included not just a, um, a martial education, like teaching him how to be a competent warrior, but also an education in Bushido, the way of the samurai, in order to make him also a noble and honorable warrior. Um, and the relationship, rather than being socially and sexually dissident to the, the ruling order, therefore actually sort of helped solidify it. Like it wasn't, yeah, it was, it, it helped that society. Um, so it's no surprise that the shogunate didn't actually regard Shudo relationships as a negative thing at all, um, especially the, the Edo shogunate, which was so concerned with social stability and social order. And also I kind of like, um, like in the European class, classical tradition as well, like the Shudo relationships didn't actually require that either partner renounce um, lovers or partners of the opposite sex, um, not during the relationship and definitely not after the relationship once it had ended. Um, and not all men were expected to take part in Shudo. Some were, some were known as youth haters and they didn't engage at all. Um, but some people, some men were seen to take part almost exclusively in Shudo or they seemed to be keen on Shudo to a, an unseemly extent and they were regarded or, or called woman haters. Interesting, almost like some of the the masculinist gays that we've talked about. Yeah, but it but it was it wasn't something that they claimed for themselves. They 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 had that form of desire, but they, it was right. a, pejor- a pejorative that the rest of society viewed them with some degree of suspicion because they they seemed to be overindulging in shudo. But the, are, you, are you known to overindulge in shudo? <laughs> Yeah, so despite the idea that you weren't supposed to engage in just just these relationships, um, they 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 were they were codified as significant life experiences. Um, lovers in shudo often made oaths to each other. They sometimes made physical gestures, such as piercing their thighs, or even apparently in some cases they they amputated their fingers together. Um, and the, the oh name, wow yeah like that's some serious that's commitment yeah <laughs> of a sort. <laughs> And um, and the nature of the relationship was also, of course, one of absolute loyalty, even to death. So it's not hard to see how this this function to educate and sort of valorize those sort of bonds of loyalty that were to become part of um, Bushido, the samurai codes. So it was it was what you might call a sort of um, type of homosexuality, but it wasn't homosexuality per se. It was just a way of of having this sort of relationship that was formalized. Um, like a, an 18th century author at the time, a Japanese author, distinguished between those who practice shudo, and that's a, as a different form and a better, superior form to men who sleep with shop boys, because they were simply men who loved to fuck. So this was seen as like, again, it's a form of sexual relationship where gender 
uh, the gendered nature of it is not the important component, I guess. Um, but there was nonetheless gendered. Yeah, I think one thing to look at here actually is is comparing these formulations of same-sex desire to what's actually happening in Florence and Italy over the preceding centuries and, and almost at the same time. Um, as, as Christopher Chitty talks about in his book, uh, Sexual Hegemony, and, and as Max Fox talked about on one of our special episodes, you have a really similar change in material conditions with this increasing urban population that's gathering around um, these new urban centers, the, in this case, these castle towns where the uh, daimyo lived and around Edo. Although in this case, it's a result of these um, edicts by the uh, Tokugawa shogunate that created these new social classes rather than the result of nascent capitalism. But you also see the development of more literature as these new urban classes produce this new market for for literature about um, shudo relationships, about same-sex desire. Um, in this case, um, townsmen and samurai, in, in the case of Florence, um, this merchant class. And you see in some similar ways homosexuality becoming fashionable as a result. Um, Although, uh, yeah, if I say perhaps there's an element of social contagion here, I might get into trouble. But I think might, might be an actual thing. I, I think, as you said before, like discourse around homosexuality does seem to have this curious effect of at least alerting people to its possibilities, if not persuading people of its merits. Um, and perhaps most similarly to, to, to Chitty's thesis, you also see a codification of what homosexual behavior is and what it should look like. Um, that comes from the top, that comes from authorities, and it's designed to actually limit the sort of social and political risk that is inherent inherent in these types of same-sex relationship. Um, for the Tokugawa shogunate, the issue was never the morality of homosexual conduct, kind of like in Florence. The emphasis was actually upon maintaining social peace, as was their focus in almost all areas of society. So I think that's actually an interesting way of looking at homosexuality, you know, Right up to, to, to today, but you know, especially in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, the the fears and anxieties around homosexuality might be portrayed as a moral fear, but actually, it's about the 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 idea of homosexuality as a distant and dangerous form of sexual desire. But this um, this kind of neatly brings us back, in fact, to Iemitsu and the policies that he's actually most remembered for in terms of preserving the so social peace. Um, I mentioned earlier the Christian missionaries who'd started to visit Japan. Um, these missions had sort of begun in earnest in the 1540s, so a good 60 years before Iemitsu's birth. Um, but they'd been remarkably successful, and by the early 1600s, when he was born, Jesuits had converted some half a million Japanese people to Christianity. That's about 4 to 5% of the population. The population at the time is about 11 million. Um, the, the second great unifier, uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the enemy of, um, of Iemitsu's grandfather, he'd seen this new religion, probably quite rightly, as a, a threat to the feudal structure of Japan. So he'd begun to suppress the church um, and expel the missionaries and even crucify some of them. But the Tokugawa shogunate was much firmer in its approach, and it was much more concerned with social peace. So, um, I mean, they would have had knowledge, after all, of like the, the Spanish conquest of the Philippines. It was sort of just, just happening, really, just happened. And this anxiety would have been made a lot worse um, in 1637 by the Shimabara Rebellion, when a local daimyo um, introduced this very heavy new tax burden um, on his people to, to build a new castle. And so he faced this revolt from uh, Ronin, 
uh, Ronan is a type of um, samurai who doesn't have a master. He's not tied to a lord, so it's like a very precarious social social position. Uh, so these Ronin and also their new Christian allies um, who had been ruthlessly suppressed by the Lord sort of teamed up into this revolt and it was put down in this very brutal fashion. But Iemitsu had capitalized on this victory by strengthening a series of edicts that he'd already made and um, also issuing, issuing some new ones. Um, and this forced the Portuguese traders and the missionaries out of Japan. Um, the edicts also very severely restricted all trades. Um, only the Dutch East India Company could trade in Japan, but even then they could only enter onto one man-made island in, uh, I think, Nagasaki Harbor. That's where their trading post was. But foreigners weren't really allowed, weren't allowed into Japan at all. Um, Catholicism was outlawed. Um, unrepentant Catholics were executed. And the Japanese themselves were almost totally banned from leaving the country and especially from coming back into the country. And this this um, this extremely isolationist foreign policy was known as um, Sakoku, and it was to last for almost 250 years. Um, some people characterized Japan in this era as a sort of hermit kingdom or like a locked country, but that's not actually true. Like trade was still possible through the Dutch, and also um, through intermediaries, um, there was some trade, um, and yeah, I guess. Um, like uh, it wasn't them shutting off from society from from the rest of the world it was it was uh, it was rather like um like it wasn't a locked country it was a country that just that actually paid a lot of attention to international policy and affairs and it, it, they they um they sort of carefully monitored and controlled their relationship with the outside world they didn't cut themselves off from it and in many ways, it was an attempt by the, the Tokugawa dynasty not just to preserve this social peace through limiting Christianity, but also, of course, to preserve their supremacy over rival families and factions by removing the possibility of this, uh, these unknown um, uh, sort of unknown pressures coming from the rest of the world. So kind of quite smart on their part. Um, and also it sort of helped support this um, very hierarchical system um, by removing um, split loyalties. And also, when you look at it in the context of other nations and, and, and colonial history at the time, uh, we, you do have to ask yourself, actually, if it wasn't an extremely intelligent policy. Um, for a start, like the limitation of exportations, like um, exports, especially of precious metals, uh, that avoided a, a trade deficit. Um, yeah, like it, it, it didn't actually re like restrict Japan as much as the risk it had of becoming conquered or colonized. So the, the, the Tokugawa shogunate actually remained in power um, until 1867, so uh, more than 200 years after, after his death. Um, and it only actually uh, collapsed in, well, the, the Americans actually forced Japan to open up through gunboat diplomacy to open their borders and to open their trade routes. Um, and within a year of them doing that, in 1867, the shogunate had, had collapsed, uh, and that led to the restoration of direct imperial rule for the first time in, in over 700 years. So this policy actually did work for the shogunate, and as soon as the, the policy disappeared, amongst other reasons, um, the shogunate collapsed. But Iemitsu himself died in 1651. He was 46, and he was the first Tokugawa shogun to die in power. He never abdicated in favor of his son. And in fact, uh, his son, who was a 10-year-old, Tokugawa Iatsuna, inherited his position.
Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, that really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in uh, joining our Patreon, uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. Um, there is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if, um, if you prepare paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism. Yeah, it's, um, if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com slash book. And now on with the show. So thanks for telling us that uh, story, Hugh. One immediate question that I have is what happens to tolerance of uh, homosexuality or male-male uh, sexual and emotional contact um, in the rest of Japanese history? I mean, does it remain tolerated and embraced in the same way? Are there changes that happen uh, later in the 18th and 19th centuries? Yeah, so this this system of this um, so-called closed or chained society um, existed um, sort of right up until the 1850s, um, as I said, when um, the, the, the Americans forced forced to open with this gun di gunboat diplomacy. Um, and and that really marked the sort of death knell for for the shogunate as a as a system, um, and with that it completely changed the relationship with the outside world. Um, there was like a sort of backlash against that, especially amongst the samurai class at that time, um, where they decided they, they they sort of wanted to rally around this figure of the emperor, um, and so um, this sort of nationalist cultural movement emerged, um, and there was. Um, the 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 emperor was restored basically as an act actual acting emperor rather than just as this figurehead um, and that's in sort of 18 1860s and with that you enter an entire new phase of japanese history called the meiji restoration um meiji means like enlightened the enlightened rule and they sort of start to implement drastic reforms mainly of the feudalistic society um, and increasing industrialization military reforms towards a more quote-unquote modern um, military, market reforms, um, like a new market-based system for private property coming in, and then a new system of nobility as well. And part of that is introducing a new constitution and a new legal code. And a lot of those ideas um, were, were derived around this anxiety, this fear that the West would overtake Japan. And so as a result, they actually implemented quite a lot of Western-influenced um, laws and attitudes, including um, 
I think in 1873, they introduced their first anti-sodomy law, which is part of this new reformed penal code. And that's directly influenced by um, paragraph 175 of the, of the Prussian penal code, which doesn't last for very long. But in the process of this sort of huge, huge reform of Japanese society, um, which includes as well, of course, like an, an introduction of the sort of sexological scientific ideas around homosexuality that are being developed in Europe and America at the time. Uh, it introduces in some way like a new taboo around um, around these sort of forms of same-sex desire, which were, I think, regarded as uh, very old-fashioned, um, almost embarrassing. Um, there is still a, a sort of aspect of um, uh, nanshoku that's being practiced in the military, but that's quite quickly repressed. But you do see this re- recovering in some ways um, uh, post-Second World War. And uh, um, uh, in, in, in our book, um, the ch- chapter on Mishima, we talk quite a lot about how Mishima's relationship to sexuality was very much based around um, these old codes of Bushido and um, yeah, these old sort of sexological models based around the idea of the, of the warrior and masculinity in Japanese society. But it's really that process during the major restoration um, of Europeanization in a certain way, um, uh, or, or, or adapting Japan to, to sort of global norms that you see the suppression of homosexuality through a sex sexological model. And do you think that has, because I know we've talked a lot on the show before about um, kind of theories of homosexuality, like Christianity, sexual hegemony, that link um, regimes of sexuality to regimes of production and exchange. And do you think there's something about the kind of imperialist modernity that uh, Meiji Japan was aiming for that somehow required or predicated um, the kind of regulations um, on this contact that that actually came in. Yeah, I think the the relationship between um, homosexuality and this feudal form based around these castle towns, uh, which see this sort of um, quite large military class with this sort of early urbanization around a lot of small but quite busy market sort of towns with castles where there's this sort of community like that. I think that is what is linked in the mind to that form of, of production of the feudal, the feudal model. And so moving into the sort of, um, as, as Japan tries to industrialize quickly and catch up, as it were, with the um, industrial gains that are being made in Europe and the United States and parts of South America, for example, um, the urge to sort of modernize um, uh, sexual mores and and build, for example, build a bourgeois family class, for example, becomes becomes very important to to, to implement that very quickly. So that's yeah, that seems to be the model. Thanks for that, Hugh. What are some of the sources that you used to research this story that uh, people could use to find out more? Well, one of the most interesting is a book called um, Cartographies of Desire, Male-Male Sexuality in Japanese Discourse, 1600-1950, by um, Gregory M. Flugfelder. Uh, also, Homosexuality and Civilization by Louis Crompton. And uh, lastly, an interesting article on um, tofugu.com uh, called Gay Samurai. Amazing. Well, uh, you can follow the uh, show on Twitter at BadGazePod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And uh, until next week, bye now. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.
Bad game. 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 Bad game.